Mr. Mdunge, good evening. Thank you so much for joining us on SAFM. Welcome. Good evening. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to have you. It's great to have one of our own occupying space. Uzozi did say that we must take up space, and you have taken that quite literally. How's the UK? Uh, it is a very interesting time, very cold. A lot going on with the Ukraine uh, you know, war, but um, we will see our 2023 goals. Fantastic. Well, 2023 is kicking off on a rather high note because politically things are just picking up from where they left off in the previous year. Now, Rwanda is 4,000 miles from the UK, and yet this does not deter the UK government from carrying out its plan in which asylum seekers deemed to have arrived illegally in the UK may now be relocated to Rwanda. The plan was, I understand, given the green light by the High Court there in the UK in December last month. Now, this program was controversial from the start. It remains so, especially from a human rights perspective. What can you share with us to be the going sentiment on the political ground in the UK about this latest development? So, you know, it's, it's a very interesting thing when you observe it. So, you know, when you look at um, polls such as the YouGov poll, you note that, you know, about 44% of British people are in support of the scheme, but about as well 40% are not. And if you then go deeper into these numbers, then what is interesting is that, of course, when you look at um, a lot of young people, those in urban areas are against the scheme, including in countries such as Scotland as well, where I am based. Um, there's a huge criticism of the Conservative Party's policy and stance in terms of this issue. And then when you look at, as you go by demographics and age, then you look at a lot of older people seem to be in quite support of, of, of the scheme. And when you break it down between party lines, um, Conservative Party members are very much in support of it, well, while Labour and the, the Scottish National Party, the SNP, are, are opposed to the scheme. Um, and, and very much, it's, it's quite a, a reflection even when you look at Brexit. You know, when you break down Brexit and, the, and what determined how people voted, migration was quite a huge issue uh, in the United Kingdom. And you will remember that um, this scheme started with the former Prime Minister Boris Johnson and former Home Secretary Priti Patel. And it came at a time where Boris Johnson was facing quite a lot of fire and criticism in terms of the party scandal at the time. And so migration was viewed as one of those policies that would attract support for Boris Johnson, particularly among his party base and loyalists. Um, and so, again, here's a huge and a very important issue, but finding itself really at the heart of um, the United Kingdom's political drama, particularly the Conservative Party. And it shows how you know, local politics can impact international politics. And in this case, this idea of global Britain was under question, you know, and, and that is something that he was pushing. But the denial of asylum seekers, the right to enter into the, to the United Kingdom, puts to question this idea of what it means to have a global Britain post-Brexit. You, you, you know, the Conservative Party has orchestrated a lot of the chaos that's really happening in the UK at a political level. Yes. But one would think despite that, and at a fundamental level, the colonial past that they still have to 
continue addressing, yes. not just through the Commonwealth structures, but in the global political spheres. How would this thing ever have been seen if not deemed appropriate? It's not. It's it's without question that for the majority of the time, asylum seekers would only ever get to that country illegally because they simply yeah. don't have the means and time and the instruments to engage the legal process into getting into that country. And the fact that you are coming as an asylum seeker and you try and do that the legal route, chances are you're not going to set one foot in that country, much less two. Now, there is nothing odd or different about what these asylum seekers who landed up in the UK have done to every other asylum seeker the world over. Yes. Is the fact that these particular asylum seekers, in the context of the rise of global nationalism, particularly yes. in the UK, ushered through, you've mentioned Brexit, but the likes of Boris Johnson, who themselves have never minced their words about what they truly feel about the African question, what he made references of Barack Obama, how he has often referred to Muslim women as letterboxes. This is him now as a prime minister or a senior government official in the House of Commons or House of Lords, as the case may be, that this thing now would happen the way that it is happening in the time at which he was the most accountable officer in British politics. What does this say about Britain as a society? Look, I think, you know, one thing that we must say is we cannot, of course, paint the British people with one brush. And it is important to particularly zone in in what we talk about as the Conservative Party. The majority of the members of the Conservative Party are old white men who are still holding on to the idea of Pax Britannia. You know, and, and the idea of Great Britain as a superpower. And this came to the fore, particularly around Brexit. So this idea of reclaiming our borders, reclaiming sovereignty, reestablishing the United Kingdom as a great power, as a standalone against even the, you know, the European Union. And so indeed, it is, it is, it is these ideas um, that, that have been formed by a particular political class within the United Kingdom, particularly the Conservative Party, that have pushed for such a policy. And so Boris Johnson is simply, uh, you know, symbolic, uh, you know, of, of what is, in, in essence, the ideas held deeply by this political elite. And that is why we do see this pushback from a younger generation, a more progressive generation, including, in fact, the Labour Party that, that, that is standing in opposition of this policy. And unfortunately, at this moment, even Rishi Sunak, given how politically weak he is, uh, you know, he will continue to push for, for this policy. I think the challenge for a country like the United Kingdom is really to establish what is its value proposition and how does it see itself in the world. And you brought about this very important question about the Commonwealth of Nations. We all know that the Commonwealth is not a, is not a grouping of countries who are equal. You know, sure. for example, you have Absolutely. the Australians, the New Zealands, the Canadas, that uh, do not need to travel to the United Kingdom uh, with visas. And then you have the South Africans, the Nigerians, and the Indians that, that must. And yet when we look from a colonial historical perspective, which countries have, have, have been uh, more economically advantageous to the, to the United Kingdom, then you then find that, in, in fact, the black and brown countries of the Commonwealth. 
And I think the question that must be asked is, you know, African countries that are within the Commonwealth, how are they positioning themselves and how are they bringing about the issues around equality in this grouping? Um, you know, for example, you can't ignore the role that India has played. It was known as the jewel of the British Empire. Uh, you know, but a lot of because of the wealth that was about, stolen from India. Ultimately, that as well. Think of you know the Cullinan diamonds. Um, you know that stood upon yeah. the late Queen's you know crown. You know, for example. And, you know, of course, the Rwandans, we argue, particularly the government, is that it is a great scheme for them. They would be receiving about $2 billion. $140 million. Pounds. Yes. You know, about, yeah, about, yeah, about yeah, that, that amount. And, and for each uh, individual settled in Rwanda, between about twenty and 30,000 pounds. You know, so you see the economic calculus in this. But what is not clear is, does that country really have the capacity? And you see, with the opposition leaders criticizing this thing and arguing, well, if our own children, our own people go to bed hungry, how is it that you can accommodate these asylum seekers, even if the argument is that it will be a maximum of about 200 um, you know, and unfortunately for the United Kingdom, that there's a huge level of criticism, including from the United Nations as well, that has criticized this particular deal, including the Church of England, may I add, that has argued that this does not have God's approval, for example. So, you know, unfortunately for Britain, it is struggling to really find itself in a post-Brexit world and in a, in a world where it must stand alone. And how does it assert or balance this idea of a global Britain? And it will be interesting, should the Labour Party come into power in, in, in the expected elections in 2024, will they change that policy and reverse it, or will they continue um, with the Conservative Party's stance? At this moment, with little voices coming from the African Union, it seems like nobody from Africa is actually standing up and saying, hey, you know, Britain, you cannot pass a a problem that is in a developed country, a first-world country, to a developing country. And the ethics there are problematic. But they would, if they were to offer a response to just that question, they would say, we have paid for it and the host nation and ourselves have come to an amicable agreement in that regard. So that argument, if that is the argument indeed, would not arise. Would that be a sufficiently plausible response to that allegation? Look, it it is a response, but whether the ethics of that response are strong is very much questionable. You know, particularly now when you consider, for example, the, the, the quickness, for example, to accept Ukrainians, um, uh, you know, into the United Kingdom. I have it on good authority that, you know, a lot of, you know, people from Africa who even through a, a legal channel are struggling even to get visas in the name that, you know, we want, we'd rather stall this in support for Ukraine. You know, and, and, and so it really then begs the question that if you are a country trying to deal, for example, with your colonial past, um, how do you then take a position such as this? But at the same time, of course, you understand here is Rwanda offering its services, and it's not the first time the Rwandan government does this. In fact, they are close to a deal with the Danish government as well and have, lift, and have raised their, their hands to say, listen, if you want support in terms of, this, in terms of you know, the relocation of even refugees 
from Afghanistan and Syria, we are here. So clearly from a Rwandan perspective, there's clearly a, a, a strategic, uh, uh, you know, play that is here, you know, and a, a need, for, you know, by, by Rwanda to assert itself as a responsible and able partner to, 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 to Europe, to what end, perhaps it is to the end of development. And in fact, if you look at Boris Johnson's response, he makes that argument. He says it is about stopping, you know, uh, it is about stopping illegal immigration. It is about stopping the smugglers. And then lastly, he then puts this, this point to say, and to support the, the economic development and investment in Rwanda. You know, and, and, and it begs to question, therefore, some might argue, should the Rwandans not get that money? Is it, is, it, is, it, is it unethical for us to require them to not receive money that would, in fact, support their own countrymen? So it, it's a very interesting question. And, and I think the Conservative Party, unfortunately, are continuing to struggle to sell this story to the British people and to, to the people of the world. And, and unfortunately, given the pressures of their base, um, it, is, it, it is a line they are likely to stick to and will not move unless um, it is seen as threatening to their electoral vision for 2024. The new prime minister, to what extent is he going the party route or has he expressed his personal view and his convictions? I'm asking because... Perhaps his ascendancy to that position might be a little bit more nuanced than, say, that of Boris Johnson or even his successor, Liz Truss. He is not originally, from a cultural perspective and in every other sense, one who would not appreciate the conversation and the sensitivities, not least on the basis of race. Yes, indeed. You know, that context is quite important. But unfortunately, you know, well, unfortunately or fortunately, politics is about power. And, And he comes in, remember, having lost to Liz Truss, who was seen as more hawkish than he was and more attractive to the party base. And so he has been forced to adopt positions that he may not necessarily prescribe subscribe to, but because of the pressure of electability and about actually getting the job in number 10, he had to do that. So, for example, think of the fact that he brings back Suella Braverman, who is seen very much as a hardcore Brexiteer, as somebody who believes... Well, she said it was her dream to have the Rwanda flight to depart before Christmas. I mean, this person is clearly one who is a major sponsor of this program. Indeed, you know, she was very much in support, you know, in support of this program. And because of the fact that he had to include in his cabinet both those who are in support of him and those who are in support of his trust, but as well as Brexiteers and, and those who are the remainers, he was forced to put in his cabinet people who he may not share the same uh, political vision or ideals with in the name of ensuring that he has a government that is able to run. Because unfortunately, his position even now with the majority, with having been elected uh, or coronated rather as prime minister, he unfortunately will require the support of the hawks within his party in order to pass his agenda this year and ensure that the Conservative Party has a, has a chance in, in next year's election. So in many ways, we can look at the issue of migration as, as really an election point, 
you know, as, as an election strategy mm. and one that he is looking towards in order to maintain the support within the base. That, now, the question can be, but then how do you cross to the other side? How do you bring those who are independents, those who are liberals, towards your side? And so it's not clear if this election strategy really works. And two, it's not clear if the issue of migration is seriously an issue that the British people as a whole uh, put as, as number one in the agenda. I think there are many other issues to look at. The energy crisis, inflation, you know, you look at the nurses' strike currently that, you know, that is happening and the mess that is happening in the civil service. Those are more pressing issues for the British people. Um, but again, it's how you sell a, a, a story and an agenda. And, and, and if they're able to do that, then, you know, they will win the day. Sure. Um, but if unable, they will have a crisis. Let's leave it there, um, Mr. Mdunga. Thank you so much for your very thought-provoking conversation and also your very thorough and deep analysis. You clearly have your finger on the proverbial pus, pulse, rather, and we shall sure get back to you as we follow the story because it certainly is one that is not just a Rwanda-UK story, but it is very much a deep-rooted historical conversation that in this instance is presented through this conversation between the UK and Rwanda. Thanks for your time, man. Thank you to you and your listeners.